0: Future Islands? For sure, on Island 1069, WIIS Key West. Good morning, Gwen Felosa, in with you for It's Too Early. That's the name of the show. Thank you for joining me. I'm going to go ahead and bring up my guest. I'm super excited to have him on. He is a professor of history, uh, an expert on Cuban history. His books include Fleeing Castro and The Mariel Boatlift, A Cuban-American Journey. And Victor Trié, good morning.
1: Good morning. How are you?
0: I'm well. I'm well. Thank you. And and I, I always ask guests: Is it too early for you?
1: Oh no, 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 okay. no, not at all. I'm I'm usually a very early riser. So and uh, uh, although I heard your introduction, you said an expert. I always emphasize: I'm I'm not an expert. I'm a student of. Okay. Because Fair there's Too much pressure and being called an expert. So it, I always say I'm a student of these things.
0: I like uh, it. Oh, but okay.
1: anyway, that's yeah.
0: Well, you're an expert to me. So. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> but I appreciate what you're saying. I always wonder what people are going to say when I'm, I introduce them as experts, and I appreciate that. It's. Um, <laughs> I'm going to just go ahead and jump right in. Um, the, the demonstrations are going on in Cuba, and and is it unprecedented? I mean, can you help put in perspective what what's um, going on?
1: Oh, ab- yes, absolutely. They're they're unprecedented. Um, why didn't, you know, why didn't they happen before? I mean, of course you're going to see all sorts of, uh, speculation. You know, I, I think that of course the people in Cuba finally having, being allowed to have the internet, but we also saw how quickly it was taken away, uh, has made a very big difference. I mean, you know, we take it for granted that, uh, you might be in Miami and you know, what's you pretty much know what's happening in Naples, right? I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a, a very big deal. Uh, you can go on the Internet, you can call somebody, uh, you can drive out there. Uh, you know, in a totalitarian society, one of the things that they always shut down is that contact, you know, between people in different places. Uh, and that's always been the case in Cuba. I mean, you know, you might hear something on a thing like Voice of America or or, or word may sp- uh, spread slowly. For instance, in my book on the Mario Boatlift, uh, it was always interesting to find out how people – that who, who weren't in Havana found out about the embassy crisis in uh, there, right? Because it all started out with a, with a big crisis at the embassy of uh, Peru, right? When 10,000 people, you know, basically took up residence there, and you, and you talk to people and they and and they heard about it three, four days after it started. Uh, so you know, the fact that they could communicate with one another, uh, I think, made a very, very, very big difference. I mean, nobody wants to live under communism ever once they've actually lived under it, right? It seems that most people who want to live under communism are people who've never actually lived under uh, uh, communism. And if you look at the example of Eastern Europe, right, those people never wanted to live uh, under communism either, and, and those people were in a state of rebellion. The difference was is that you had the Soviet tanks, and the Soviet tanks would come in and put down uprisings. There were many, many uprisings before 1989, uh you know you know here you know i think the big difference was uh you know something happened in one town and a bunch of people in another town were able to see it and that you know and then town after town after town after town after town uh you know you know that the you know it was kind of out of the bag it's like oh my god there are people everywhere that feel the same way i do and people lost the fear because they saw one another coming you know you know going out taking to the streets uh, but this was a long time in common. But they've always been able, the government there has always been able uh, to stop these things, to divert them, to turn them around, uh, you know, to use emigration as a, as a, as a safety valve, uh, etc. But, you know, this time things just didn't work out that way. but again it isn't that all of a sudden people in cuba discovered they were unhappy with the government or with the system this has been the case for 60 years except you know that there was a unique set of circumstances now that 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 caused this and it wasn't the lack of vaccines right people were not in the street You know, screaming for vaccines like you've seen some news reports, uh, you know, saying that, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, people were asking for freedom, for their liberty, for, 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 for a free society, for a democracy to live like a normal country.
0: Now, now, you've spent a great deal of time uh, writing about researching the Cuban exile experience. Uh, you're born and raised in Miami. Your parents fled Castro's Cuba in 1960. Can you talk about the personal connection to, to what you're writing about? I mean, you're you're well,
1: there. I grew up here um, in the community. My parents left, I guess what you would call during the first wave. Right. Which was, you know, up until 1962, up until the. Um, uh, Cuban missile crisis and and, that, and when when all the flights all were uh, you know finally cut off because Cuba and the United States there were still commercial flights between the two nations until October 1962 even though diplomatic relations had been broken in January 1961 so i kind of grew up in that world um, you know of where, where 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 the parents were you know people who came over in their early 20s during the uh, uh, first wave etc And so, but this was all kind of, you know, part of the furniture, right? This Mm -hmm. was just, you know, you know, part of the adult world, part of what we had around us. Um, You didn't think much about it. But the older I got, the more I realized, you know, how important this was. And certainly when I went overseas to study, uh, you learn a lot about yourself and, you know, where, where, you know, where you fit into everything. And it started to interest me more and more. Uh, I was a history major, which, of course, to me, history was, you know, Rome and Julius Caesar and World War II and the Middle Ages and whatnot. But I started looking back at you know, what I grew up around, and it was and it was, it was fascinating to me uh, because not only did I know it well, but, you know, I guess in my own way, I was, you know, I was part of it. My family was part of it. And then when I went to graduate school um, at, at uh, FSU, it still wasn't my major field of study. But gradually, uh, several things happened at FSU, where I finally switched to not, not Latin American history, not Cuban history, but United States history. Um, and within that context, uh, starting you know, this you know, Cuban-American experience. And it was great that I majored in those other things and that for many years, I, I, my, my historical interests were elsewhere because I got to learn a great deal about that, and which only enhanced my knowledge of what I grew up around. Um, and so, yeah, and so it's, it's, it's been quite a journey.
0: And, uh, you, you've written, um, about, you know, the, the major events in, um, Cuban history, Bay of Pigs, one, mm-hmm. one that your first book, Fleeing Castro, Operation Pedro Pan and the Cuban Children's Program. I knew very little about this. Can you talk about, um, this, this, what happened?
1: Well there, you know, just you know, sometimes timing uh works in your favor. It was it was the nineties. Uh I was in graduate school. Um I needed a, a a dissertation topic. I had gotten the job uh uh in Connecticut. I was gonna do uh and, and, and I, I had already written on a Cuba topic for my master's thesis. So, so I had already, you know, you know, taken, you know, that first step, but, but for my doctoral dissertation, I was going to do, uh, Al Capone in Florida and, but the problem was that I got the job in Connecticut. So I had moved there and so it was very difficult to get sources and it it just a whole bunch of things. And then my brother, um, were in his driveway and he lived in the Grove at the time and now he lives in uh, Washington DC, but you know, you know, we're walking out and a friend of his had just done a story his uh, he, friend is a journalist, on Operation Pedro Pan. And I'm like, well, what's that? And we're talking, this is maybe 1993, 1994 at the time. And he tells me, and then I started looking for it. And it was just about that time where, where a lot of awareness about Pedro Pan was uh, coming to the surface. There were 14,000 children, but most of them didn't realize they were part of a big program. Now, of course, they do. But at, but at that time, there was there was some articles, there were some news stories. Uh, Monsignor Walsh had written an article 20 years earlier, but there wasn't a book, right? Mm-hmm. There wasn't, you know, anything that told the story from, you know, from, from, from the start to the end. And so I said, oh, perfect. This is going to be that topic. I talked to my uh, graduate committee. They said it was fine. And then I wrote it. And then still, you know, as late as that, and they were talking – uh, already, you know, going into, you know, to the late 90s. I defended my dissertation in 1995, and I, I, you know, thought I would send this in to see if someone would want to publish it. Um, and, you know, I rewrote it as a book manuscript, because, you know, you can't just turn in a dissertation. and But but still, even at that late moment, I never thought that, you know, people would be interested in uh, something that I grew up around, right? I mean, oh, I mean you know, big deal, 14,000 unaccompanied minors, a U.S. State Department, Catholic Church, largest, you know, child refugee movement in the history of the Western Hemisphere, uh, it was Cold War, Bay of Pigs, Cuban myth. who would be interested in that, right? I mean, now I look back and I say, and I think, of course, people were interested in that. That's incredible, Right. But again, since it was something I was brought up around, it was still, you know, part of my view on that was still, well, everybody went through something like that. And, you know, and little by little, I learned, no, they didn't. And of course, you know, it got published and it was the first book ever on Operation Pedro Pan. Uh, I mean, since then, there's been a whole bunch and, and, and you know, but but at that moment there, you know, there was none. And so, you know, I think living away from Miami and spending time away from Miami and living, you know, in Connecticut for the past almost 30 years, um, you know, I'm able to view it. You know, I'm able to come immerse myself in all of this and then go back to New England and view it through those eyes. Uh, and, you know, you tend to see a lot that, that that I tend to see a lot that I wouldn't see um, had I been in Miami all those years, I think.
0: And one thing I wanted to talk about or ask you about, uh, you know, we live in Key West, the Florida Keys, and we see... People um, trying to make uh, making this treacherous journey from Cuba to South Florida on makeshift vessels on on very mm-hmm. you know unseaworthy vessels, as the Coast Guard would say. And it's mm-hmm. you know immigration is such a divisive topic for you know in the age of Twitter and everyone's mm-hmm. on the internet. Uh, what what is your what are your feelings when you see you know people coming over you know, risking their lives to, to be right?
1: There? Well, I think I think what a waste. I think how sad um that up until 1959 and i'm not talking about any government in particular i'm talking about the cuban nation you know cuba was you know among the top nations in latin america certainly the top nation in the region uh where it is if you look at all of cuba's numbers the size of its middle class uh the advancements in cuba the literacy rate in cuba uh, the nutrition in cuba in every you know, uh, standard of living, quality of life indicator, Cuba was at or near uh, number one. It was a country that attracted immigrants. Uh, again, my whole life, you know, all my friends have been, you know, Cuban. And if you just look at their last names and you ask their uh, history, uh, you know, you know, it, it isn't just from Spain, but from Italy, from the Middle East, from Poland, from China, uh, from all over the world. People went to Cuba because it was a land of opportunity. Right and people prospered. Certainly, it had problems, but you know it it, it had probably the largest middle class anywhere, an uh, accessible middle class, uh, and and all of that disappeared. And now you see a country uh, which has been creating you know refugees for 62 years that everyone's desperate to get out of and is willing to do anything. I mean, I mean the number of people who've had to separate from their children, from their parents, from their siblings. Uh, it's, it's been horrible for 62 years and it didn't need to be that way. And, and, and it was out of the, uh, you know, unfortunately the malice of, of, of one person and we have the situation we have. And and it's very sad because I mean, Cuba probably could have been, um, you know, you know, even, even much better off than it was. And it wasn't that Cuba was frozen at that level. Cuba was growing. It it had reached that level. It was still becoming, uh, I heard someone say that you know it you know it it, it was it was on track to be the Singapore uh, of 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 the of the Western Hemisphere, um, and you know or or the or the Hong Kong but not Hong Kong anymore I suppose, um, but but it, it was really going somewhere and then it all just got you know diverted and now, you know we're you know we're down to where we are and people crossing the dangerous Florida Straits on on makeshift rafts and. Lord knows how many relatives they've left behind and and it's all very sad it's all very tragic.
0: And and I, I know I'm kind of running out of time but I wanted to ask you when um the Obama administration ended wet foot dry foot in 2017 w- mm-hmm. w- why did they do that?
1: Well, um I'm not sure. Um that's already more uh current politics which again I know what I see uh on the news i know that the cuban government you know used emigration in the past you know as a safety valve uh president clinton had already started to you know not be so generous when they did the wet foot dry foot um and so i'm not sure i'm not sure that's a little bit too recent Mm -hmm. um uh but it was almost the last thing he did uh, while in office. But, you know, again, you know, one of the problems with 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 Cuba is a lack of awareness, right? People don't know and people don't want to know. And I think that the that the media, unfortunately, uh, has has not really, you know, revealed, you know, everything that goes on there. I mean, even now they're saying, oh, yeah, people are protesting for the lack of vaccines. It's like, no, they're not. That just gets repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know if you look at when that wet foot dry foot occurred, right? Uh, uh, Donald Trump was getting ready to take office, right? And he announced, well, you know, we might restrict, you know, you, you know, or hold up immigration from people who are coming from, you know, certain countries which, you know, have, you know, basically regimes. We're not sure who the government is, right? And then President Obama, you know, does this. This got almost no press attention. In this case, people, Cubans were actually who who, who were coming on a visit uh, were actually being turned away and detained because they were being asked these questions. They didn't know why they were being asked. Uh, uh, they had tourist visas and they were being hauled away from Miami International Airport. It was actually happening. It wasn't that people were speculating it was going to happen, you know, or that it might happen. But, you know, Donald Trump wasn't even president yet. You know, he, he, he said something and people took over the, uh, uh, JFK and, and LaGuardia Airport and there were protests and there was news story after news. Story and nothing had happened. Nothing mm. had happened. And yet here we have, my you know, MIA here, right? You know, elderly people coming to visit their children, who are actually being detained, separated, put into into uh, 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 orange jumpsuits uh, and, and, and nothing Nothing, uh, and it's the same thing. What's happening now? You know, I mean, there's some you know outlets that are covering it, and others that are just you know ignoring it. And 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 sometimes it could be very frustrating.
0: Mm. Well, um, I just so appreciate you coming on this morning, and um, you've been great. I hope we can have you back.
1: Well, okay, just give me a call, I'll be call back. you
0: every day. Victor Trier, okay. <laughs> you've been amazing. Um, thanks for all you do uh, to to uh, document this history and, and uh, spread truth to people. I appreciate it.
1: All right, well, thank you for having me. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Take care. You too.
0: And everybody, thanks for tuning in this morning to It's Too Early. I'm here weekdays at 8.15 Uh, We're going to take a look at your headlines and weather forecast. But first, we're going to play a song. This is Weezer, Undone, Island 1069. Stick around, everyone.